This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A Toronto pharmacist has won an international prize for his research on personalizing medication. John Papasturgio joins us in studio. And a 55-year-old Peterborough woman who dreamt of becoming a police officer is taking the Toronto Police Service to the Human Rights Tribunal because she says she was rejected because of her age. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. What does it take to help Zoomers stay in their homes as they age? According to a new survey by B.C. Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie, many need more assistance with housekeeping and preparing meals. The survey heard from approximately 10,000 seniors and family members from across the province. Nearly 30% said they would like more help with housekeeping, while 12% need help preparing meals. The survey also found 80% know how many medications they are taking, but only 59% know why they are taking them. Gord Downey will perform again. The tragically hip frontman announced this summer he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and just wrapped up a coast-to-coast tour billed as the band's final shows. But Downey has decided to play two more concerts in support of his Secret Path project, a set of songs and a graphic novel honoring Shawnee Wenjack, a 12-year-old Ojibwe boy who died from hunger and exposure near Kenora 50 years ago. The music and novel will be released October 18th, the same day Gord Downey will perform at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, while the second show is slated for Roy Thompson Hall on the 21st. Zoomer acting legend Dame Maggie Smith has accepted Jimmy Kimmel's challenge for her Emmy from the recent awards show. The 81-year-old won Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for her role as Violet Crawley on Downton Abbey, which airs on our sister station, Vision TV. She wasn't able to attend the ceremony and was also absent in 2011 and 2012, when she also won for Best Supporting Actress. Awards show host Jimmy Kimmel quipped that they weren't going to mail the statue to England and that if Smith wants it, she could find it in the lost and found. She's coming for the statue. Recently, Smith tweeted, If Mr. Kimmel could please direct me to the lost and found office, I will try to be on the next flight. And an 80-year-old Blackburn, England man who became an internet star when his son posted videos on YouTube of the two of them singing in the car has landed a deal with Decca Records. Tell me when will you be mine? Tell me quando, quando, quando. Ted McDermott was diagnosed with dementia in 2013 and his son Simon 
figured posting the videos could raise some money for the Alzheimer's Society. Decca record executive Alexander Van Ingen saw Ted singing on YouTube and stepped in to see what could be done. Ted has now recorded his first single at London's famous Abbey Road Studios. So far, the effort has raised more than $200,000 for Alzheimer's research. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. You've probably heard of personalized medicine for cancer treatment. It involves tailoring drug therapy to an individual's genetic makeup. Now that principle can be applied to your everyday medicines. Toronto pharmacist John Papasturgio, one of my trusted contributors on Fight Back with Libby Snymer, won first prize for his groundbreaking research at the recent World Congress of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in Buenos Aires. He joins me in studio. In pharmacy, what we're focusing on is trying to develop ways to predict how well you'll be able to metabolize different drugs, how well drugs would work in a specific individual. And the way that we're doing that is by doing a genetic test that lets us understand what kind of enzymes you have in your liver that metabolize these drugs, and it allows us to predict how well the drugs would work. And also how well we would tolerate them. We would tolerate uh, it as well, yeah. And that's very important. I'll give you an example. Picture that uh, me and you get the same dose of a drug. So they're giving you the same dose, they're giving me the same dose, and that's conventionally how medicine works. And you may have certain genes that code for these enzymes that will clear the drug, but your enzymes may not clear that drug as quickly as mine. So for you, that dose may accumulate. You may be prone to side effects. Whereas for me, the drug's working and I'm clearing it regularly, then I'm taking my next dose. So these individualized genetic factors play a role on how well your medication will work. And in some cases, they may predispose you to side effects. In some cases, it may be that the the medication won't work as well in you because you're clearing the drug so quickly, it's not getting a chance to work. How do you test for this? Very simply. Now, we have the technology that allows us to do it with a simple cheek swab. So I've partnered with a company called Genuine, and we're able to test for how about 100 medications will be affected. So this is not for every single drug, and I get asked this question, could you test for my drug? Well, no, not necessarily. We look only for medications where we know that there's some evidence to suggest genetic factors may play a role in how well they work. Um, so we take a cheek swab. We kind of put it in a vial, we send it off to the lab. And what comes back is an evidence-based report that lets us know what kind of enzymes you have, how well they'll work in different situations, and how they will affect different drugs. And now we have that as a reference. So we're able to help make clinical decisions in those patients. Okay. And are the drugs that it works for, are these drugs that are commonly taken? Yeah, it's a great question. Many of the drugs are very common. So we say on our on the list that we check for, it's about uh, 70% of the medications that people take. So they're very, very common drugs. Drug classes that we test for are the psychiatric medications like the antidepressants, which are very common, anti-anxiety medications, Opioids, uh, many of the antacid-type medications that are very common are found on the list, anticoagulants. So there's a host of drugs that are there, definitely. And are they all prescription drugs or some of them over-the-counter? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, most right now are prescription drugs. Or, uh, uh, if you think of something like codeine, which you get over-the-counter, would be on the list as well. And that's one drug that we're very interested in because many patients don't metabolize it very well, so we're able to predict that. Let's get to the study. It was a small study. 
100 patients. Tell me a little more about yeah, it was, uh, who you know, was tested. So we had this idea. We partnered with uh, the company who funded our project. They gave us a bunch of free tests, uh, enough to test 100 patients. And, and we wanted to enroll patients that we thought would have some benefit from the genomics. So we enrolled patients on many different types of drugs. And what we looked at is based on the results we were getting back, were we impacting their therapy? Were we able to make a change in their therapy? Were we able to put them on a new medication? Because we found some type of problem that was based in the genomics. And, and what we found, it was, it was about, on average, 0.8 drug therapy problems we were identifying. So almost one problem per patient, which is oh, okay. really, yeah, it really speaks to the fact that the pharmacists were doing a great job pulling in the right people to test. We didn't want to test everyone indiscriminately. So they were they were doing a great job identifying that. And we also found there was a lot of value in just the conversation with the pharmacist because uh, pharmacists were identifying other problems unrelated to the genetics as well. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, these people were Zoomers, the average age, um, a little over 57. That's right. And they were taking about five or six medications. Now, did you pick people on so many drugs because there's a better chance that there's a problem somewhere if they're taking so many? Yeah, we wanted to focus on the uh, patients that had multiple chronic conditions, were taking multiple medications. Those are patients a lot of times, there's so many things going on with them, we can't really, we can't figure out, is it one drug that's having an effect? Is it another drug? Is it the combination of both? So we were hoping that the genetics would shed some light on that. And we found in the study that it was. The other kind of thing we wanted to, uh, you know, assess was what did physicians think of this, right? Because for the most part, it was it, the buy-in was pretty high. We felt almost 70% of our interventions were being accepted by the physicians. But what happens now with this test? It's available but expensive, yeah, am I right? Well, I mean, the cost is about $500, right? Um, that seems like a lot, but when you think of the drug costs for people taking medications that may not otherwise be necessary or they're having adverse effects as a result of the meds, really that cost is small compared to the long-term cost of some of these medications. Would a patient be able to get all the correct information if they order a kit online? Um, the great thing about uh, Genuine is they have consultant pharmacists that work there, right? I think this is actually very important because we're hearing a lot of, there's an explosion in this area and it's not just for medications, but there's for disease state management or for people trying to predict if they're at risk for 23, certain, and, 23 me. and me and some of this other stuff. What I'm concerned about is patients are buying this technology or having access to it and they're not sure how to interpret the results creates anxiety, they panic, they run into their doctor's office with the results. A lot of times the doctors aren't familiar with the exact test that they're using. And it, it, it just creates this anxiety that I don't think is necessary. Uh, I think a, a healthcare provider should be involved at all times. They're able to interpret the results, especially if they're trained in, in that specific test that you're doing. And they'll give you some guidance because there's a lot of information there that may not apply to you specifically. And then people panic, right? Yeah, Sounds like uh, very good advice. Yeah. John Papasturgio, thanks so much, and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That was John Papasturgio on his award-winning research on pharmacogenomics. You can get the kit at pillcheck.com, but take John's advice and make sure to consult a healthcare professional. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. In a moment... A 55-year-old woman claims she's a victim of age discrimination from the Toronto Police Service. That story when the Zoomer Week in Review returns. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. 
Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Is the age of 55 too old to start a career as a police officer? Teresa Doherty certainly doesn't think so. The 55-year-old Peterborough woman believes she was in line for a spot in a recruiting class with Toronto Police until a background officer asked how old she was. She's filed a complaint with Ontario's Human Rights Tribunal. I reached her at home. What made you decide that you wanted to become a police officer? Well, I knew that the time was ripe. Um, I'd I'd gotten out of my life what I had tried and strove to do at that point, but I also had so much love to give, and I knew that I wanted to find a career and become involved in my community. And uh, I just started to, again, do some research, and I thought, you know what? They're, they're looking for mature candidates. They're looking for female candidates. They appreciate diverse life experience. Um, having an honors degree or university degree in, in post-secondary education would be in my favor. When did you apply for the Toronto Police Service and what happened? Toronto Police Service, I applied uh, way back in, I think, 2010. I spoke with an officer, and that was an informal get-together. And then I was invited to do an informal night, 2010-2011. I got invited for an interview and had my interview successfully in November of 2012. And that, again, that's six years ago. So four years later, it went from having a tentative offer of employment for the spring class in 2014. And this is the phone call that led me to my decision of contacting human rights is when I, I had been waiting for this phone call from Toronto police, uh, you know, to, to proceed. Uh, and then when I got a call from the background officer stating, okay, Teresa, we're, we're considering bringing you in for the next class, but we're going to have to hurry. Uh, at that point, I informed her that I had passed my interview and she wasn't even aware of that, but she asked me a little bit more about myself. And I thought that that was rather curious because I thought she would have her file in front of me. Um, and then she asked me how old I was. And that really took me back because I thought, well, first of all, you're a police force. I thought you had my file in front of me and you should know how old I am. At the time when I passed my interview, I was, I think, 52. I believe that it's, it's illegal to ask your age in an it interview. It is illegal. It is illegal. And, and you know, and, and that mentality is not only illegal, but it's sorely outdated. What transpired between that initial offer for proceeding to the next class that was 2014 in the spring, two years later led to a final culmination of being sent a letter in the mail saying you're no longer uh, involved in the police process. What do you say to the argument that in terms of runway, it's a lot of training and you wouldn't have a full career ahead of you? What do you say to that argument? In today's society, there is no mandatory retirement age. And I myself believe that um, hiring the younger worker, I mean, there's not as much longevity oftentimes, as I said to the staff sergeant, I said, you know, after all I've been through trying to obtain this coveted position and trying to struggle and show my tenacity and determination, I said, I'm not going anywhere. So, I mean, I would give you 10, 15 years, and uh, I'm so receptive to training, and I have such a passion for for the entire police culture. And I said, you know, you can hire younger counterparts that don't have near the life experience that I would like what to a- contribute to this job. What are the next steps? Well, I left that with human rights. Now, human rights is taking care of it. Now, what they sent me just recently, a note a few weeks ago, because of holidays, Toronto has requested to have another month tacked on, so they have till, I believe, October 4th or 5th to respond. 
Okay, well, I hope that you will keep us posted on how this goes. I will indeed, and I cannot thank you enough for your interest. Thank you so much, Libby. That was Teresa Doherty, who is taking her case of ageism to the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. I'm Libby Snymer, and you're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, for his 82nd birthday, Leonard Cohen announced the release of a new album. We celebrate the life of one of the biggest names in Canadian music when the Zoomer Weekend Review returns. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Nimer. It's time for your international arts datebook. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. The National Museum of African American History and Culture opens just a few steps from Washington's National Mall, where Martin Luther King made his most famous speech in 1964. The museum exhibitions include slave cabins, a blacks-only train car, Louis Armstrong's trumpet, Muhammad Ali's training gear, and a red Cadillac driven by Chuck Berry. In London, Artists and Lovers traces a number of the greatest artistic partnerships of the mid-20th century to suggest how love and friendship can shape the creative process. It's on in Seville Row until October 29th. In the Bavarian capital of Munich, more than 6 million people are expected to attend this year's Oktoberfest. The world's largest folk and culture festival runs until October 3rd. And at Amsterdam's Foam Museum of Photography, dissident Chinese artist Ai Weiwei has unveiled thousands of mobile phone pictures of refugees, saying the exhibition tries to speak with one voice for those who fled to Europe's shores. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, Canadian Zoomer singer, songwriter, and poetry legend Leonard Cohen celebrated his 82nd birthday. Cohen was born in Westmount, Quebec, to a middle-class Jewish family in 1934. Initially an author and poet, Cohen did not embrace his musical side until 1967 when he released Songs of Leonard Cohen, which became a springboard for his career, and a legend was born. Over the years, he's recorded hit songs as well as writing hits for dozens of others. Some of the songs included So Long, Marianne, Suzanne, and of course, the oft-recorded, never-duplicated Hallelujah. Cohen was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2008 and named a Companion of the Order of Canada in 2003 for his contribution to the arts. He's never been one to rest on his laurels either. On his 82nd birthday, he announced the release of his 14th studio album entitled You Wanted Darker. On the album, he wanted to emulate the sound of the synagogue of his youth, so he turned to the same synagogue, Montreal's congregation Shar HaShemaim, and its cantor Gideon Zellermeyer and the all-male choir. They can be heard on two of the tracks, You Want It Darker and It Seemed the Better Way. Here is Leonard Cohen's latest single, You Want It Darker. If you are the dealer, that was Leonard Cohn's latest single, You Want It Darker, from his new album of the same name, to be released October 21st. This week, Leonard turned 82. 
And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nyman. Produced by Dave Woodard and Paul Thomas. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.